I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Today on What's Next, we're talking with Stephanie Pete. Stephanie is a Director of Workforce Development at Say Yes uh, to Education Buffalo, but she is also, most recently in the last year or so, got herself into a small business, and it's uh, one of my favorite kind of businesses, bookstore. The, she is the co-owner of Second Chapter Bookstore here in Buffalo. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Jay. I appreciate being able to speak. Oh, love that. <laughs> love, love to talk, and I most certainly love talking about books. Start for, first right off the bat. What, what was the... The motivation, the inspiration about uh, starting second chapter. Um, yeah, so reading has always been something like super important in, in my uh, family, in my household. My grandmother was an avid reader. Um, my mom is a retired educator. Um, and if anyone's ever had a parent as a teacher, you know, there's always homework. Like, there's never, <laughs> it's never like, oh, we, we got a homework for a week. She's like, no, you no, here's your homework. Um, and my mom was really big on reading. So, um, and she'll deny this because she still does, but um, she used to make me read a book a week. Really? Yeah. Wow. And then when she thought I wasn't telling the truth about reading it, she used to make me write a book report at the end. <laughs> so, like, reading was always, you know, very critical in our household. My mom was very intentional about making sure there were, like, black authors, uh, black narratives in our house to just, you know, make sure that I came with that, came out into the world with a sense of, you know, pride in who I am and, and, our community and our culture. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then a few years ago, I was watching a TV show called Single Parents. You probably haven't seen it because nobody did because it was canceled <laughs> after three seasons. <laughs> um, but I liked watching the show, but there was a black woman on it, and her name, I think, was Poppy. But she had a, a wine brewery is what she called it. So it was okay. like a feminist bookstore where you can come and also just like have a glass of wine with your friends. And I was like, that's really cool. Like if we had that here, like that's someplace I would go to. Um, so I told my mom about it. We went out to dinner one night uh, and I told her and she was like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Like we were just talking about it and super excited at dinner. But then life just, you know, you get busy and you put it away on a shelf. Um, but then my mom decided to retire and she literally called me and was like, hey, I'm about to retire. Come over on Monday. We're going to start the bookstore. And like that was how <laughs> it sounds like your mother is not a person you say no to. Too yeah, often. I mean, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm glad that that was her approach, because for me, I was always like second guessing myself and I was very like anxious about doing it. Like, is this. I don't know what people wanted, you know, supported and, you know, would this work here? But she was really the driving force to getting it started. I want to get into the bookstore, but mm -hmm. since you, you kind of stumbled into this about your early at-home education mm -hmm. when it came to reading and reading black authors, were there, what authors were along the way that maybe particularly influenced you that you, even maybe today, because it sounds like you, you started this fairly mm -hmm. young, that are still standing with you right now? Um, one of the, ch my favorite childhood books is actually Tyra Beach. 
um, and Faith Ringle did the illustrations for that. We actually still sell, we have that book on our site right now. I found it because I'm like, the kids nowadays need to see this book. Um, but I was the type of kid that I would read things I had no business reading because um, I would get bored with the things that were supposedly for my age. I remember I was like 10 or 11 and I read Mama by Terry McMillan because it was in my mom's wow. like, like like her work area. Um completely inappropriate <laughs> for a 10 <laughs> or 11 year old but um yeah so i would you know anything i can get my hands on i read yeah yeah so early on i started reading um you know terry mcmillan and and uh maya angelou and anything like literally anything i can get my hands on if it was around i would read it how early did you get into tony morrison or tony not... morrison was probably more like high school and college yeah, yeah. a little more challenging yeah oh yeah even now challenging oh yes, yes. yeah we're actually going <laughs> to read um i haven't announced yet but we're gonna we do our uh coffee chats um usually about once a month at unapologetic coffee and i wanted to start the year moving forward with reading some of the classics and we're going to read something by tony morrison excellent so second chapter bookstore so that in essence the big part the big focus is here is to get these books, to encourage people to find the books, mm-hmm. all black authors or mainly black authors? Primarily black authors, okay. but the entire focus is like black history and culture. So um, we do have books written by non-black folks um, who are talking about something significant within you know, history um, and providing some context. Um, but everything is focused on um, black history, the celebration of blackness across the diaspora, um, and we do have some um, books, you know, with some intersectionality. So we do a lot of Afro-Latina writers, um, it's just exploring what blackness looks like beyond the beyond the U.S. and what we see too. Okay, uh, and then you do you encourage this by putting together different events. Like you started yeah. off with that. Let's let's have a glass yeah. of wine yeah. uh, thing, which really got my attention. Yeah. Boy, they should have done that for me when I was in college. <laughs> uh, but what, let's talk about those events and how they really right off the bat. How did it go the first yeah. try? Uh, so our first one was our biggest. So we, we launched um, our bookstore with um, our book club experience, what we generally describe it as. So, uh, you buy a ticket, we mail you the book in advance, um, and then when you come, there's cocktails, there's food, sometimes there's a DJ, um, and each one has a different theme, and we have folks who, either myself or some colleagues or some friends in the community, will actually facilitate the discussion, just because we know some people are a little intimidated about reading a book and talking about it, or maybe they didn't get a chance to read the book, but they can still participate in some of the major themes. Okay. Um, so that's one thing that we do. We've done a few this so year. So you're not going to yell at somebody? Okay? You no, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> we, I, I've done a lot of book discussions even before this, um, and most people don't read the book, so I, right. I come in knowing that. Right. So, you know, we just pull the major themes and make it relatable and move forward with that. Um, we also do coffee chats and unapologetic coffee. Um, those are completely free. You don't have to buy the book from us. If, I mean, great if you want to, but if you, you know, you want to, borrow from the library or you're a Kindle person, what have you. We just want folks to come together and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are free. We do them about once a month normally at Unap- Unapologetic Coffee. Um, and those are really intimate, so 12 people or less. Um, and it's really someone described it as a sacred space recently, which I yeah. truly, like, I'm honored. Yeah. But it usually becomes, we usually stop talking about the book at some point, <laughs> And we just start talking as human beings and our lived experience. And it's a really healing space, and I'm very thankful for it. Um, and then most recently, actually this past Wednesday, we did a book discussion with tweens. Hmm. So 10 to 12-year-olds. Um, that was a suggestion from 
um, Juaria over at BNMC. Her son actually wanted to do it, so he came up with a, <laughs> him and his brother came up with a long list of topics. I was like, okay, what about climate change? That's something that you know most kids, especially with with, with what they're seeing, they can relate to that. Um, so we had three um, kids um, who read the book. We did a prep session with them, so I gave them the questions and they practiced. And then we did the actual live event on Wednesday, which was the most adorable thing. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool because um, we see a lot of excitement around children's books. But unless we run into someone who just has a, a 10 to 12-year-old who just loves to read, we don't sell a lot of tween books. Mm. You know, they're on their phones, social right. media, video games. They just they kind of like lose that love for books. Which so that's something crushing. we definitely want to continue. Yeah, it is crushing. Yeah. Uh, what was the book? Uh, saving Earth. Okay. Um, and it was about uh, fighting for climate change and saving our future. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what were the, like you said, it was adorable. What were like? How, what did you hear from the kids? I mean, they took it really seriously. They took yeah. they they had their their uh, questions in advance, and they actually studied. They talked about redlining and its impact on the climate uh, on our climate and you know climate change. They talked about. Um, you know, methods to reduce like your carbon footprint and how to talk to adults in your in your life and to, so they can take you seriously. So they really did a great job at uh, capturing like some of the major parts of the book for their peers. Wow. Anyway, yeah. Tell you, redlining and its impact on climate change. Mm -hmm. That's pretty uh, heavy yeah. stuff for a 10 to 12 year old. Yeah, they took it very seriously. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I, that's mom. I, that's very encouraging. You yeah. gotta uh, you gotta really feel good about bringing that conversation yeah. together. Let's talk about some of the other books. You you have one right here in front yeah. of us. On this one you haven't had. We haven't had a discussion. discussion We're planning something one. in January. This hopefully. is called? Um, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson, who's a phenomenal um, scholar. Um, we actually read a book um, from her earlier in the year at one of our coffee chats. Um, it's called The Second, um, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Mm. Yeah, that was, I, I highly recommend this book, that book. Um, this one is actually, um, the premise is that though white people who subscribe to white supremacy and want to uphold it, their true um, issue with black people is not merely just their existence, but the idea that they want to live with dignity and ambition. Which is... What is the... <laughs> I hear that, and I hear you saying that, and what... I mean, does she explore what is at the root of that? Is it is it just... Their problems with their own right. self-esteem, and they don't want I mean, any, they it, want it, by putting someone else down makes them feel better. I, don't I mean, it's in that. a nutshell, uh, feeling that black people are not equal to white people. Like, how dare you want to live in the same neighborhood as me? How dare you think you can attend school with my children? You know what I mean? How dare, how dare you, how dare you think you can work with me or be my supervisor? Like, and she goes through and uh, through different. Um, different areas of history like she goes through education she goes through like civil rights to see how they have worked to snatch away any progress so any vehicle that allowed for black progress they dismantled it right wow uh, and i mean does she talk about numbers of people that might subscribe to that that, that fall into that or is it just about how that portion of opinion or whatever you want to call it has influenced the overall conversation in, in America. I mean, she does go through um, some stats. There was one, um, it was shortly after the Civil Rights Act was passed. 
um, over 60% of white people surveyed felt that black people were getting rights too fast. Too fast. Too fast. The right like, to vote was too yeah, fast. Yeah, you should get a trickle. You shouldn't get, <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's, when you Sorry think of laughing. something like that, um, I mean, that's a pretty powerful right. sentiment that, you know, and again, it's how dare you think you should live with dignity and ambition. Mm. How how do you, um, when you're reading something like this, how do you keep your emotions in check? I actually find this, so I actually don't read things like this normally. I read to escape, so I like mm. a good, give me a good old novel. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't, I have to deal with this, you know, during my full-time life, like having to, you know, be really entrenched in equity issues. So for me, reading is an escape. But what this does is it gives me more tools in my toolbox to have conversation with people. So I look at it as necessary. Okay. So, okay. you know, yeah. So I, you know, do a few novels. Then get back to something serious, and then you know I try to balance it out. You're, I read based on how I'm feeling. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but in this particular case, you're able to yeah to separate yourself because you, yeah. you believe you need to have an understanding of oh absolutely what's I think that's really critical. And I tell people all the time like you need to understand the history because we all think we do and we we don't. Even <laughs> like even though I read things like this, I'm still ever you know I'm constantly unlearning and replacing that with what actually happened. You know it's it's interesting because obviously you're. Because of your mother, thank you. Yeah. You're a tr- com- <laughs> tremendously well-read individual. Book a week, my goodness. Um, are you? And I think I, I know the answer, answer to this, but I'd like for you to maybe explore it a little bit. You know, when you were younger and you were reading books, you probably had an understanding of the exist, you know, of racism and mm-hmm. and how America worked. But doesn't it seem like the like the, the scholarship now is is really kind of unearthing a whole new conversation and, a, and an understanding of of what's at, at at work here yeah absolutely i think we're having more pro- progressive conversations more honest conversations with younger kids and i think that's really important because i mean most of us went our whole lives and either in college or at some other point in adulthood we ran into something that kind of like clicked the light bulb on and then we started doing the work but I think it's happening with kids, and I think that's so powerful, and I think that's why you see so many folks trying to, again, dismantle that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking before we went on the air about a book that I, I was sent by a Canisius professor, of, um, How the Word is Passed by mm-hmm. Clint Smith. And, uh, you know, it was the same idea that, you know, talking about, I won't get into all of it. I mean, I, first of all, I'm part of the world, world's mm-hmm. worst book reviewer. But just <laughs> the idea that, you know, how – certain legacies have been allowed to exist mm-hmm. just because, well, that was the accepted w- mm-hmm. approach to history and how that has had a damaging effect still today, all these years, you know, at, you know after the Civil War and mm-hmm. such like that. Um, it, it is interesting to see how there are scholars out there who are unearthing not just new information, but new perspectives mm-hmm. on, on this topic. Yeah. It really is interesting. So that's what is at the heart of, of a lot of what your your book club your book clubs are about and your your book events. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a good old like celebration of blackness. So it's not yeah. just okay. You know, history. It's just you know we're reading a, a a black perspective and having a good time with it. Yeah, I think there's there's. Can you give me a book example of that? Or uh, so we started with a book called Black Joy and it was stories of resistance, resilience, and restoration. Um, and it's a collection of essays. Um, and while she did address, you know, racism and, you know, gun violence and its impact on our communities, 
she also talks about how to cultivate joy and how we maintain it and how it's necessary to like fiercely protect it as black people. So, I mean, we, you know, and we normally we pick books sometimes based off something that I've read that I thought was phenomenal um, or someone will suggest a book um, and then I check it out and I'm like, yeah, this is really great. I think other people will like it too. And that's just how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the celebration of black joy. Mm-hmm. Um, I can recall one guest coming in here talking a little bit about that very topic. Um, that's something that does not always get the, yeah. the maybe the, the spotlight it deserves. Yeah. I mean, that's how you're able to read stuff like this and not like go into a dark place because you still, <laughs> you know, you you have this internal joy that you still have and, um, and you protect it and you nurture it um, so that it sustains you through the not so joyous moments. Not so joyous moments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sustains you through the hard work. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um you were like you were saying also about white rage and books like this, how mm-hmm. they become a tool in your toolbox when mm-hmm. you go out and you're doing your work for say yes, which you know focuses on workforce development. Mm-hmm. How how does that come into play? How I mean, can you maybe give me an example of where, you know, you're you've encountered a situation where all of a sudden you found yourself needing to kind of yeah. recount some information and an understanding and an argument about yeah. about things that, that came into play. Can you yeah, talk about so, that? I, so I will say the employers that we work with, because they know our work is rooted in racial equity, they're coming to the table with the right, right intention. Right so yeah. it, it, thankfully for us, it hasn't been as much of um, – as a back and forth um, with folks. You're not but, pulling teeth. Now, right. So but I, what, what this does do, it, it gives, it helps us root our own work and data. And I think a lot of times when um, we talk about equity, folks, they don't see it. You know, if they, they don't have an intimate perspective of it, they don't notice it. But when you talk about the data locally and what it looks like and you help paint that picture, then they see their, they see what the issues are. Then you're inviting them to help take part in the solution. So that's what reading these type of books helps me to do. It helps me to be focused on the data. It helps me to tell a story. Um, and then we say this is our role in fixing this and, you know, recreating, well, creating a different uh, future for the kids in the city and the community. And we invite you and here's your part. So like, like, let's work together right. and figure this out. Yeah. I'd like to know more more about that, about, you know, how you – utilize that data and and you build that story Mm -hmm. stay with us there's more to come this is what's next on wbfo hi i'm christina i love exploring the world around me and i have behind the scenes vip tickets to some of the most exciting places and people in western new york and you can come along with me from wherever you are let's go a new series you can watch on wned pbs the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel and on PBS Learning Media nationwide. So let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Stephanie Peet, Director of Workforce Development at Say Yes Buffalo, and also the co-owner 
of Second Chapter Bookstore. So let's talk about that then. Uh, you know, I, I like the way that you framed it. There's a story there that needs to be understood about how racial inequity is impacting mm-hmm. this community or how it has impacted it. So you know, give me the, the narrative, for lack of a better term, of how, you know, tell me the story. Tell yeah. me the story of, of how racial equ- inequity is, is, is failing or is, is hurting this community. Yeah, I mean, so we, I mean, we know, well, most people know the stats, you know, around 85% of black people in the city live east of Main Street, you know. The isolation index for white people in our community um, is over 90%, meaning you're going to work, you're coming home, and not having true organic engagement and relationships with folks who do not look like you. Um, our school district, you know, 81% of our young people um, identify as people of color, there are over 100 languages spoken in our school district. But when you go to most of our major employers in the area, that's not what it looks like. Um, so we paint that picture to employers so they can understand that um, you can come with the right intentions, but if you are not well equipped, then it's not going to work. And that's where we're trying to get, we're, we're trying to help with the being equipped to um, create inclusive spaces for young people of color to be able to identify and challenge the policies that you have in your organization that may have perpetuated inequity. And that's like a tough pill to swallow, but as a society, we have to swallow that pill. Even like you see a lot of um, companies and even like cities and municipalities um, getting rid of the degree requirement for for, for roles. Okay. I mean, that was put in place for a reason. It, it was not a qualifier. It was actually a disqualifier. We won. <laughs> I We're guess keeping I never people thought about that. We're yeah. keeping people, you know what I mean? Right, but it's right. like you have to look, you can't assume that you did everything right. You have to be able, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and have a critical conversation, you know, a critical eye um, and say, hmm, what could we be doing better? Like, you know, where is there space to grow? Where is there space to challenge? Um, and I think when you focus on data, um, it helps to eliminate the finger pointing because it's just like, look, this is what's happening and like, what are we going to do about it? Like, right. this is what our community looks like. How do we fix it? Right. So in your, as you use the term, it'll make, help them have the tools that they need mm-hmm. to become a more inclusive organization mm-hmm. and to benefit from, from having, you know, different perspectives and different talents. So what, what, I mean, uh, probably different employers are different, right? But, you know, what are some of those tools that they can use or should be utilizing to try to try to create this type of space yeah i mean even when you think about interviewing young people um so we actually have um we had a high road fellow from cornell a few years ago her name was libby she did a study on connecting students of color to corporate internships and she had a list of recommendations there were things like even interviewing off-site when you think about a you know a young person of color uh, especially black and latino kids coming into a corporate space where no one looks like them. You're already nervous. Like, nobody likes to interview. Sure. Interviewing is yeah, terrible. Right, I never right. want to go on one ever again That's in my universal, life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but to be a kid, so there's already that power dynamic, right? You're a kid. This is some mm. probably somebody with a ton of education and experience. Then it's the power structure of this is a super white <laughs> environment, and this is not what I'm used to. Um, so even, like, going off-site and having, like, doing interviews, like, in the community when you're trying to, like, actively recruit young people – um, making sure that, that there are people who look like them involved in the interview process. So using like, you know, uh, maybe a panel of folks. So it could be more conversational style. 
um, with our modern youth apprenticeship work in our first year when we did interviews, um, my colleague, um, Johanna, who leads our education work, she actually had a suggestion for um, employers that kind of like changed the game that year. Really? So we were wondering, like, how do we get the kids appropriate clothes for interviews, right? Like, logistically, like, we have to figure out, are we going to take them? Are we going to... Right. Okay. That, that's that's a lot when you're talking about over 100 kids for an interview. Um, but instead, she said, how about we just tell the employers, like, listen, assume that they're coming in the best that they have, their kids. You know, we just came through the pandemic. Now everybody can fit their clothes. Right. Right. <laughs> um, right, right their right. kids, they might not have money for, you know, a brand new outfit. Some, you know, we have a ton of refugee and new American kids. Sometimes they're coming culturally in something that would be. Right appropriate you know interview ready from you know from their own perspective and culture um so let's just assume that they're coming in their best and how about we accept that um and what it did for employers they actually came casual too to our interview day it kind of like freed them also of these like rigid standards of professionalism right air quotes that i mean we know who established these (laughs) we know who established these guidelines it wasn't anybody who looked like me but it freed them up too to just be to be less worried about what you're wearing and be able to focus on the conversation and getting to know them and see if they're a good fit for the role so i mean it's and how how, and and the results it was great they loved it i mean we still had some kids who came in you know a suit and tie but we also had kids who were able to just come and just interview and be comfortable um and you could tell it made a difference oh absolutely yeah and yeah. ha- and have we been able to see how it's been personified then in, in these internships? I mean, have we, are we seeing kids? Yeah, are we're you... seeing we're seeing folks who are you know just being a little bit more open minded when we're talking about getting young people into the workforce. Right. And, yeah. And the kids are. I, I guess that's the question. So more kids maybe are now getting into those spots, winning, well, yeah, the, winning yeah, those few, interviews few, for like fewer barriers. And it's, it is, it's just a mindset shift. That's all it takes, just have, having the conversation saying, oh, yeah, that it could work that way too. It doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. This also works. Yeah. So it's like eliminating barriers that we've subscribed to. A lot of these things we just simply subscribe to. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, if <laughs> yeah, I was going to have an interview. We didn't decide it. We just, you know, we grew up. You have to, this is had. what an interview outfit looks like. But when you look at it, like it, who dresses like that, especially when you talk about communities of color where you see vibrant prints and colors and jewelry and all these things you see in indigenous communities across the world. But yeah, you're supposed to come into an interview with your pearls and your <laughs> tie, your tight black skirt. Yeah. It's just, white, why white do we, shirt. why do we do this? Yeah. Well, you know, I wish they would have done that for, for me like 50 <laughs> years ago, but that's another story. Um, what else though? That, that's a great insight. Though. Mm-hmm. That is an incredible insight about, uh, like you said, how can a barrier be broken down? And that's a great way mm-hmm. of taking something that's very simple and basic, like right. an interview, right. and eliminating, you know, a, 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 for lack of a better term, a tradition that's just it's just what we do, how right. we have done right. things. What else? Are there other examples like that that you can share with me? Um, yeah, so we just talk about onboarding and how often it's not student-friendly. It isn't student-informed at all or young people-informed. Okay, just be, be onboarding, meaning? For a new job. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when you right. think about it, so it's bringing somebody usually, in. I mean, onboarding is never fun for most people. <laughs> no, it's just, it's you know, you learn all the policies. You sign a bunch of forms. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing up nightmares for me. Right. <laughs> but, like, making it, you know, fun and engaging and think about it, thinking about it as a young person, not you right now in your role, but right. like taking taking things and flipping it on its head a bit to make young people more comfortable. It really is about comfortability for a lot of young people. They have the desire, they have the passion, they want to work, 
they want to support themselves and their families, but a lot of times we're stuffing them into these super outdated boxes. So it's like, how do we um, change things and put them at the center and design for them and also using their voice? So as much as possible, we try to actually infuse youth voice. How do you feel about this? What do you think about this? Like getting their honest feedback, and then we change things up based on that. What's a misnomer about uh, a young person when it from from employer standpoint, I mean, like, like we saw, we talked about before, talking about the books and such about, you know, once that phone gets into the hand, it becomes a big part right. of who they are. I would think for employers, it's kind of a negative, but it's a rally. But what other what other misnomers are there about? I mean, kids? They, they they don't want to work, and the thing is, they do. They just they want work that matters. They want to feel mm. like they're contributing something. They want to be paid well, and they just they want to feel like. Their whole person is respected and included, mm. not just the fact that they're just an employee, but their entire identity. They want to be acknowledged and they want to feel like they're they're wanted in that space. Right. So I'm, it, I'm it, it sounds a little fuzzy, warm, no. you know, for, for folks who haven't been. Right. You know, maybe that hasn't been their experience in the workplace. Like you go to work, you do your job, clock out and go home. But right. these kids, they don't want that. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's that's a that's a great insight for sure. Um, what about the other side of the coin, though? I can imagine that there are um, employers who are hearing this or hearing these types of conversations. Well, how does it help my bottom line? What 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 do I get out of being more inclusive? Other, I mean, it's nice mm-hmm. to be a, a good corporate neighbor and mm-hmm. you know and right. and all that. I mean, and that's but. You know, a lot of people are interested in the bottom line. Will this help my bottom line? Yeah, it will, because when you'll have people who want to work there and they tell their friends, like, over the next 10 years, our region is going to need 160,000 jobs. Most work will, requ- excuse me, will require some, some form of post-secondary education. Um, and we can try as much as we want to. We're not going to recruit 160,000 people <laughs> to move to Buffalo. We're a smaller market. It's just not not going to happen we have to grow our own so when you think about creating inclusive spaces for these young people to work they tell their friends and then their you know their family members and they become a referral source for you so um you get folks who want to work and who can grow in your company but then they literally help you recruit because who doesn't do that like i was recruited to say yes from a friend oh is that <laughs> right there yeah okay. but i mean that's word of mouth is so powerful that's so true. You're getting talent, getting them super early. They have ties here, so the likelihood that they'll stay here are increased versus folks who are, you know, being recruited into the area. And this might just be a pit stop for them. But then you tap into their entire network if you're a great employer. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a, a great way to think about it. Um, what about the types of jobs mm-hmm. that we're talking about around here? The one thing that, again, this is anecdotal, and you probably know this better than I do. When it comes to workforce development, the one area that seems to be lacking in terms of applicants are, are, the, are the, the, the trades, right? Mm-hmm. That seems to be, there seems to be a big gap in there. How is that being addressed? Um, so for us, we've been focused on advanced manufacturing, business operations, and IT. In our modern youth apprenticeship work, we are um, looking at how to work uh, closer with the trades. Um, for us, what we're seeing is that a lot of folks have been I'll speak as a black woman. Please. It's go to college, right? Go like for me when I going to high when I was finishing high school, there was no other option. Right. It was go to college. Graduate from City Honors, right. been a book my a mother, week for her whole life. Mother was, you're going to college. You're going, like it was that, and that has been. And it, I mean, higher education still is a vehicle for, um, you know, getting into a career and being able to thrive and create wealth. Um, 
And especially for black people, that is kind of like that North Star, like you're going to go to college. And we tend to not look at certain career fields as viable, including like manufacturing and trace. I Just personal experience from my own life and just talking to some of my family members and friends who have kids who are getting ready to go to college. And I'm like, hey, it doesn't have to be that way, though. There are these other professions. There are right. other ways to, to approach higher education. I know for our modern use apprenticeship work, um, we combine um, on-the-job learning. They're getting paid for it with some higher ed coursework. So we're just saying, yeah, you can still go to college. This is a different way, though. Right. You know, part-time right. work, earn money, and get into a really great career. But I think a lot of it has been, like, emotionally driven. Like, this is – you're going to go to college. And we all know that college doesn't always – no, no, it's not always. Because <laughs> you know you're making a decision at 18, and you don't know how that actually aligns with the the real world, and oh, you know, and and uh, you're, talking what you're somebody be able to 40 make. years of broadcasting. <laughs> Trust me, I know exactly what you're saying there. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it has been emotionally driven, and we look at the trades and blue collar roles a lot of times as something less than. Right. And it, and I'm like. Most of these guys making more money than me. Uh, <laughs> with no college debt. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I think it's just a reframing um, of um, and for, and for folks that make decisions based off of you know labor market data. Like this is what this role can be. You know, this is what you can make doing this type of work and seeing the honor in it. So. Is, it res- is that it. resonating? Is that message resonating with young people? Yeah. It's starting to, but you know, it's it's you know it's going to take some time. But right. I think. You know, they're motivated by being able to earn a good living and, you know, experience things and be able to live a balanced life. So I think when we start to show them, like, well, this is what this role makes, they're like, oh, really? Right. Yeah. So, it, you know. What about then, though, on the other side of the coin, though? We're talking about going to places where people, you know, do they look like me? You know, mm-hmm. you're, you know you're going to the corporate power office and, you know. We have those images of who those people are mm-hmm. going to be coming down. What about in the trades? Is that are we? Is that is there also that kind of separation going on? I just wonder about how these, you know, job sites and things like that work for for people of color, and if if they are, you know, the types of inclusive, um, you know, environments that that are needed to really attract yeah. those types. I of I mean, workers. those issues still exist in the trades too. We haven't directly worked with the trades just yet, so gotcha. that so hasn't right. been our so, experience. Yeah, okay. But that's something that we are looking into because we have requests because they're like, hey, these are great, great careers. We're having a hard time reaching um, these kids. So, okay. yeah, that's definitely something that's in so our plans. There's a bridge that still forward. needs to be crossed to a Absolutely. certain extent. Okay, are very good. Thanks for joining us today. This is what's next on WBFO. More to come right after this. Attention, parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Uh, Stephanie Pete is our guest uh, this morning on What's Next, having a, a great conversation because Stephanie has, uh, she has her hands in a lot of very important <laughs> things. She's the Director of Workforce Development for Say Yes uh, to Education Buffalo, but also the co-owner of Second Chapter Bookstore, uh, recently opened here in uh, 
in Buffalo, and I, I love talking about books, so I'm, I'm most certainly enjoying this. Uh, you know, Stephanie, uh, uh, on one of the local websites, I'll give it credit, WIVB, a beautiful article written um, with you at the, at the center of it from, I think it was maybe last August, mm-hmm. so August of uh, 2022. And, you know, you were quoted in there on some different things, and, and one of the things you suggested is, and a lot of it was a reflection on May 14th, stay angry. You need to stay angry. Mm-hmm. I've been sitting here with you for the last <laughs> hour. You seem like the least angry person uh, there uh, is. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but what about that? I mean, is, is, expand on, on that, that, that emotion of that time. Yeah. Um, has, it, has it faded? Um, I don't think it has. Um, it might not be on the front page of um, the news anymore, but it's still there. And for me, um, yeah, I might not seem like it. There, there is always like an undercurrent of a little anger as a black woman and, sure. and the, the things that we still have to navigate and dismantle in order for um, there to actually be equity um, in our society. So for me, um, that's kind of like the fire that keeps all of this going still. So yeah. there's... Like I talked earlier about, you know, still maintaining your joy. Um, you can have both. And I am always a little, <laughs> I am always a little angry. It's just um, you have to, the way you communicate it is what's important. And that's how you have to pull people in. Um, if I'm walking around visibly upset and, you know, audibly angry all the time, you don't build any bridges. You don't build relationships that way. But there is always an undercurrent of me being truly upset about something. And that's what fuels all of this work. How do you, you want, <laughs> you're talking about drawing people and I'll, I appreciate you being honest about and open about your, the, the anger that's always there. The other side of the coin, you know, you feel like you have to subsume that to a certain extent mm-hmm. to help build bridges and things like that. What, what do you use for techniques? What do you have when it comes to building bridges? That's a great way of describing it. Honestly, a lot of it is just through books. Like, I literally recommend a book, and then folks are like, oh, yeah, I read it. And I'm like, okay, you want to talk about it? And, like, let's yeah. meet for coffee. So it's, yeah, books is one way. Another thing is just finding folks um, online with, like, shared interests and connecting with them. And then somehow we become allies in the fight. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, being willing to see people – for who they are, and if they have an express interest in some of the work that you want to do, like running with it. Like, oh, you, you want to do some work? Like, yeah, let's talk. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm a true believer in, like, you find your people. Like, you know, you you vibe with the people you vibe with, and then you'll find community. And I, that's just my method. I don't worry about those who I'm not connecting with. Gotcha. I focus more on those who, who we do have some type of shared interest. Yeah. You, you, you know, you brought up that great stat earlier about, I think what you said, 90% of, of uh, people in, you know, in this area, I think, or maybe yeah. it might be everywhere, you know, they, they, maybe they go to work and maybe they work with somebody, uh, a white mm-hmm. person works with somebody, uh, a person of color or people of color, mm-hmm. and then they, that's it. That's, right. that's, that's the experience. Right. There's nothing else beyond that. What about that, though? It, how important do you feel it is to now, to change that number, to make oh, it, yeah. Make it, you know, you know, uh, you know, whatever number we can end up being. Maybe right. it's a hundred percent the other way yeah. eventually. But you know, what about that? What are what's what's the call to action there for for people? What do you say? I mean, so for for me, it's two different things. It's one changing the practices to get more people who don't look like you, who don't have your lived experience in your workplace, um, and that's you know the work we do at Say Yes. But it's also um, 
with these books, uh, even though we are like a black owned business, we focus on black culture. We do call, we, we, I, I've had white people ask me like, is this, are we allowed to come? Like, yes, you're allowed to come. <laughs> like, please come Let's actually. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's another, re- that's another way because they're having this conversation they're reading this book and they're taking that back to whoever their natural, you know, support system is or whoever their natural circle is. And they're continuing the conversation. And that's really important because I really believe it's crazy that sounds like literally just having one conversation with someone or connecting with one person that will have a ripple effect because now you're able to take this message to people who I might not ever meet. Um, what about Buffalo? You, you're a lifelong Buffalonian, uh-huh. but but you read a lot of books. You have an out. You have a sounds like you've had a pretty good worldview. What's Buffalo lacking when it comes to this? This type of I mean, we, we can talk about the numbers, but what's la- lacking on a on a person to person basis? Honesty, I think, in a lot of conversations, um, I think we walk a lot of lines that we don't need to walk anymore. Like, it's okay to – like, I have really honest conversation with folks, and it's it's from a, a place of just, like, my own lived experience and my – and just being vulnerable versus um, I think sometimes we're afraid of honesty because we're afraid of offending. And it's just like – sometimes you might be a little offended by what I'm saying, but – um, I always tell people, like, sit with that. Don't run away from it. Like, actually figure out, like, okay, what 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 did she say that triggered me? And, like, how do I dig into that and figure out why? And then what do I do about it next? Mm. Right? So I think there's a lot of honesty missing. And I think um, there are a lot of amazing pe- young people, younger professionals who have amazing ideas and are willing to put in the work, but they often don't get the chance to lead things. Really? So I think we, this community could do better with embracing younger leadership and newer ideas. Mm. I'll leave that there without I, going too far. <laughs> I like the way you said that. We need a mix. You know, of course we need sure. the folks who have been in the fight and they, they know, you know, we need their knowledge, but we also need that innovation that comes with, you know, a fresher perspective. Are you encouraged by the young people that you're meeting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All the time. All the time. What do you hear? What do you see? I mean, you know, you're still you're still young. Well, when you're sitting in this room, you're young. I'm getting auntie status, but yeah. yeah. Um I'm encouraged by how willing they are to just be themselves. One. I, mm. I know for me, um, and my peers, we we definitely drank the Kool-Aid of you have to conform in order to get into the door and stay in the door. And you see young people who are just authentic, authentically themselves, not just in how they look, but in how they speak and their values. And I just think that is like so encouraging. And I think it's amazing. And they are, they are transforming the spaces that they're in. Um, and just, you know, this Gen Z is, that's the first generation that has internet their whole lives. Right. They've seen a lot more than we did at their age. <laughs> that's so they, for sure. A lot of things they already know, they're just not willing to, to tolerate it anymore. And I just think that's incredible that they're willing to push and say, um, that, that framework doesn't serve me or serve us. Like, let's create something new. That's, uh, I, that's a great perspective. Yeah. That's the most encouraging thing I think I've heard in a long time. Yeah. What about the other side of the coin, though? What's pushing back against it? Would you do? Is there something? Are there trends or uh, conversations, whether they're local or national, that are the other way? It, 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 this scares me. The, the, yeah. the, there's yeah. this is coming, and, and yeah, this I mean, is not good news. I think nationally, we've seen you know folks afraid of losing power and being decentered, and that's a big thing. Like we talk a lot about decentering whiteness, and it's not that white people and you're 
experiences and perspective doesn't matter. It's just the fact that none of us were ever centered. Like, we all deserve to be in a center. So we're asking you, like, crack that open right. and let the rest of us in. I think people are really afraid of that. Right. Yeah. And to the, peop- to the people that are afraid of that, that's a great way of saying it. Beyond the idea that hey, just just be nice and, and, yeah, and we break get that up a lot. the power. But yeah. what is the other part of it, if if we can break those that, mm-hmm. that mold, what what can we picture that's 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 better? I mean, you know what I mean. You know that aspirational idea that you know it's. I mean we, that the old cliche that I've mm-hmm. heard forever is you know, you know all ships rise with the you know mm-hmm. with the rising don't. tide. Right. Right. <laughs> what about that? What? How, yeah. I mean, I think people are afraid of losing. You know, I'm gonna lose what I understand, the sense of security, or maybe some wealth. And I mean, that really that that is the the truth. Though you are gonna lose something when we're talking about making things equitable for everyone right because when you think about it white people have uh access and wealth and power that wasn't supposed to just be there (laughs) it was supposed to be shared everybody's right Right. right so when you think about it that way um you might lose a little something in this um however we have to be more concerned with the whole like right as a society like we we need to be uh, thinking of what, how we benefit from everyone having more. Well stated. Right. That's yeah, okay. Excellent. And we do. We would. Like when you think about even just wealth alone, like the homelessness and everything, like that impacts everybody. It might, you know. Incarceration. Yeah, right. That, yeah. There's, there's all <laughs> sorts of Society as a whole improves when everyone has more and everyone is safer and, 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 respected and has equal access to health. I mean, you, we can go down any rabbit hole, but right. Yeah. No, I appreciate you. You're opening up those, those rabbit holes for me. Stephanie Pete with me for a few more minutes here on what's next. Um, Stephanie's with say yes, Buffalo, but we also get a chance to talk to her as co-owner of second chapter bookstore. Let's just talk books for, okay. for a little while Yay. here as we go. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so we talk about white rage, which is right here in front of mm-hmm. us. I, I offered um, how the word has passed uh, uh, before. But let's just talk about some, some favorite books and maybe some recommendations. Uh, what splashes yeah. to mind for you? Ooh. Huh? Um, it depends on the subject, but there's a lot of things let's, that I uh, love. Let's throw a subject out. Let's, uh, let's just start history. History. Um, how to be anti-racist is how being anti-racist is fantastic. I highly recommend that. Uh, I mentioned Carol Anderson. She's written a few books. Um, she's an amazing scholar. And what I love about her is sometimes um, reading about nonfiction, especially like history, can get like super heavy. You know, yes. those books. Those books are <laughs> books are super dense. Um, she right. gets in and gets out in a way that I think is very yeah. accessible. Yeah. Her books are usually under two hundred pages. She Thank gives you. you context. She relates it to right now. She gives you history, and then she's done. <laughs> and she moves on to another subject. And I think it's like it's important to have books like that where it's not overwhelming and people can um, not be intimidated by the book. Okay. Um, uh, one book that I've read, not recently, but um, it comes to mind, is um, his name is George Floyd. I think it's a phenomenal book, and I think everyone should read it. I was okay. actually gifted that book Um and despite, again, the density, I couldn't put it down. It was a fantastic they, – they used uh, his life and the life of his family, so his entire lineage, to show 
um, how his family, his entire uh, lifeline was impacted by anti-black racism Mm. from land theft to um, over-policing and incarceration. Like it it was, it's a phenomenal book. Highly recommend it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Novels. Novels. Um, What'd you read? What's the most recent novel you read? I read a lot, so I can't remember the last <laughs> okay. one. Well, yeah, um, Memphis by Tara Strangefellow was really good. Um, What's that about? It's about um, a story about a woman um, and her daughters and also how she grew up. Very focused on women, the book is, um, but it touches on domestic violence and mm-hmm. you know generational trauma and um, her daughter who is able to overcome and live uh, a life that she's designed for herself. Um, not one that she felt forced into, which so many black women um, do um, end up feeling that way. Um, Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward is fantastic. It's an older book. It came out a few years ago. Loved it. Um, but, yeah, I can go on and on about – I tend to lean towards female, black female writers. Sure. Um, but What about classics, like uh, something that's maybe a little bit older? Uh, the Bluest Eye. By Toni Morrison is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started reading um, my uh, Maya Angelou's her entire uh, series of her autobiography. Everyone thinks about you know I know why Caged Bird sings, but I think there's like what six or seven in the full collection. Um, so I think I'm three or four down. So that's a goal of mine to read her entire life story because she's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, you mentioned. The Bluest Eye, and when you did, it reminded me actually of a lot. What actually kind of prompted us to reach out to initially was book banning. Yeah. And Bluest Eye. Oh, yeah, it's one of the most oh. banned. Yeah. That and Beloved. Yeah. What do you say to people that, I, you know, I, I, I can, you know, I don't spend a ton, ton of mm-hmm. time on Facebook. I do recall my wife sending along something mm-hmm. to me, re- reading a, a, pa- a passage from Blue Sky, and how it was being utilized, mm-hmm. a small passage mm-hmm. in a book that has been acclaimed mm-hmm. to try to ban it in our school district. Yeah. Talk, uh, wh- I I'm going to give you the, the, the platform here. Yeah, I think when people... Um, Whenever you see a book ban, buy those books on it and read why they don't want you to read them. Mm. Um, give them as gifts, share them. I think it's really important. This is nothing new. Like this is b- banning books. It just feels, but it, it has feels a certain new feel to it because though. yeah, because we have social media and it's in our face yeah. so much. But it's nothing new. Like the first book was banned in what 1637 right. in the colonies, and it was criticizing the Puritan government. Like that, right? Like there right. you go. Right. Criticizing right. the government. We don't yeah, I used to keep a picture at my desk right. of a book burning in. Uh, California of John Steinbeck's mm-hmm. Grape, Grapes of Wrath, which right. obviously, again, is a well-accepted classic right. now. absolutely. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so you're right about that. The first nationally banned book was, what, the uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, because mm. they were worried about it causing, like, a slave rebellion. Like, it's nothing new, um, but what I feel is most challenging about, what I feel most angry about um, the book banning is what it's doing um, to kids, because... It's easy for me as an adult to say, okay, well, I can just do what I want to do. I can read whatever I want. I have access. But so many kids, like, in school, in their libraries in school, that might be their most consistent access point to books. 
So by banning them in the schools and dismantling what libraries are supposed to be. I remember I used to skip class in high school. My mother's what? not going to like this. In <laughs> my math class, I used to skip it. It was IB Math 1. Don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> but I used to skip my math class, and I would actually go in the library, and I would just read. Wow. You know what I mean? So it was like, though I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, it was still like this haven for me and being able to select books off the shelf and just sit down and read. And like the fact that people are trying to destroy that for kids, we should be deeply troubled by that and we should be acting more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, I can just, I have this picture of you at Cine Honors skipping out of your math class and <laughs> going to the library and reading. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great to have more kids like that. How do you how do you win the argument, or not? Probably don't win the argument when it comes to talking to kids about reading books. Um, what do you what do you say to them? Um, I think it's so important for you to nurture it younger. Like the earlier, the better. When you mm-hmm. can get it, you know, when they're babies and it's, it's picture books to get them excited around reading and to make it like a regular part of your home life, um, so that it doesn't feel like something they're being forced to do. Right. I think a lot of kids look at it as a chore versus um, a luxury. It really is a luxury, and it is an opportunity to, um, you know, broaden your worldview. And there's so many, like, there's health benefits. There's there's so much good that comes from reading, but I think a lot of it is them. Kids have to see parents and people in their families reading it, and they have to make it part of, you know, the home life in some way or fashion to, to really get them to see the value in it and to normalize it. Stephanie, Pete, um, we're winding down here. Um, I, I I haven't asked this question in a while. We used to ask you quite a bit. Um, I, I think I know this. But you're you're obviously very committed to the things that you're mm-hmm. you're into here. But um, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? I am because if not, then it <laughs> it's a hard life to live. I, you know, I focus on the 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 things that we see changing and whatever small wins that we do we see small wins yeah I think when we see employers who are saying you know what yeah we're gonna change policies and we see young people thriving in workplaces when I see repeat people come to our book events and bring folks and I've actually met friends you know it's hard to make friends as an adult I've met friends through these events um, and people sharing the book and saying you know I bought it for a friend. Um, and talking about it publicly, I think a lot of times people will talk privately about a book like this, but to say, to see people like sharing it on their social media and say, yeah, like I read this, uh, I think other people should read this. I think that's really powerful. And, you know, you have to focus on those little small things you're doing in your immediate community, um, because that's the ripple effect. And, um, you know, we tend to think you have to be famous or a celebrity in order to really impact change, but you're you're changing things in your immediate community, and those those changes are powerful. So you have to focus on the good. You can't be consumed by what you're not able to immediately tackle. I could see your if you're involved uh, and your friends are involved. I could see these book discussions being pretty <laughs> lively. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, it's a really it's a they're a great time. So. Check us out. Yeah, so <laughs> we come but, to some of the next ones. But right now, there's nothing, nothing scheduled. But uh, um, we're doing a coffee chat on November 18th. We're talking about um, Gabrielle Union's latest book. Um, you got anything stronger? Ah. It's a collection of essays, and she talks about a lot of things. You know, infidelity, um, just challenging the system as a black woman, um, raising um, children, one of their kids being um, trans. So yeah, it's a she has a really great perspective on a lot of things. So it's the 18th at Unapologetic Coffee? Um, yep, Unapologetic Coffee, coffee. On Main and Street? it's free. Yep. What time? 
9 30 to 11 a.m oh bright early 18th. in the morning yeah i'm an early bird i don't <laughs> 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 so then we not, we try not to interrupt people's day you know saturdays right. are busy hopefully yeah. you can carve out some time in the morning before you know all your other activities gotcha. and, yeah gotcha. wow well i mean best of luck again uh uh, Stephanie Peters is the Director of Workforce Development at Say Yes of Education, for education, to education, sorry about that, I can't remember my own writing sometimes, and also co-owner of Second Chapter Bookstore with your mother. Yep. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, check it out, and uh, if you love books, this is the way to do it, and uh, I love this conversation. Thank Thanks. you. Me too. Thank you for being with us. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.